This week on the Rail Spurter Podcast, we are covering our book club. Welcome to the Rail Splitter Podcast, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. I am your co-host, Mary, and joining me tonight is Rail Splitter Nick. What up, Rail Split Nash? Everybody getting stir-crazy who've gotten so desperate to listen to a podcast about Lincoln, you're in for a treat. And Rail Splitter Jeremy. Hey, everybody. Hope everybody's hanging in there, and we're happy to be your key to escape reality for a little while. It don't cost very much, so hopefully you'll enjoy Enjoy the show this week. So uh, how's isolation going for you two? Uh, it's given me some time to read. Um, mm-hmm. um, I work, Nick and I work at the same place, and it's been a surreal experience, I think, for educators. I've been, I thought this was going to be an awesome opportunity to get a bunch of work done on some projects and things. And I've been busier than I am when the students are there, just doing all kinds of stuff, just kind of answering questions and helping kids and parents and teachers out. And so, yeah, I've just been uh, not relaxing at all. So, um, but it has been nice to have a little bit of extra family time. And I, of course I do feel for everybody who's um, having some discomfort around the isolation. And then of course, people who are uh, impacted by coronavirus. It's a, it's an interesting time to be alive. Yeah, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just a teacher, so I haven't done shit. No, I, haven't <laughs> uh, I don't think I'm quite as busy as boys, but, you know, putting stuff together, answering kids' emails. So I've had some time to – well, actually, I was doing a lot of different stuff with the vet project. So actually, this has been less busy for me, um, which has been kind of nice. Time to catch up on a few things um, and also getting some time to uh, read. Um, like I did for this, so not scrambling the last second. So I also hope everybody's hanging in there. Um, you know, thoughts go out to all of you who have been personally impacted by COVID uh, nineteen. So yeah, I think surreal is a good word to explain what we're living through for sure. Bizarre. I, I would agree. It's been very surreal, and like Nick, I hope. Everybody is doing well out there. Um, I, as I've said before, my job is such that I, I can't work from home. So, um, kind of on a bit of a leave right now. And um, I've actually been really immersing myself more in Lincoln and the Civil War than I have in a lot of years. I guess because I've got a lot of time to do that now. But I find an incredible amount of comfort in it. I've been tweeting a lot over the last few days about. Uh, kind of the Appomattox surrender today tweeted a bit about Shiloh on uh, the 6th and the 7th, which was the anniversary of it. And uh, just, and, and obviously reading in particular <laughs> for our book club, There you go. which tonight is the, um, so this is the third time that we've done this. And uh, so this is the first installment of probably three, maybe four, episodes depending on how we decide to do this um so the book we are reading as we announced in i think it was two episodes ago yeah two, Sounds right. two weeks ago 
was, um, so the book we're reading is Tried by War, um, Abraham Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief by James M. McPherson, also the author of Battle Cry of Freedom, which is probably one of the best single-volume histories that you can get about the Civil War, even though it was written, I think, about 30 years ago. It's still the one that, that comes highly recommended, and I get asked all the time, you know, which one would you read? And that's the one that I recommend to people. I've used it for research. I, I need to do the deep dive and read it all the way through. Um, and eventually I plan on doing the deep dive and re- reading Shelby Foote. Mm, that, that is a deep dive. <laughs> that is. That is not one we will probably do as a book club on here because that would take yeah, us forever. You're need the first volume read in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, so Mary, real quick, uh, before we uh, jump into the book club part, um, normally at this time of the show, sorry to interrupt your, yeah, your no hosting, worries. but um, we normally talk about news things, Lincoln related. I don't think... There's not a whole lot of news things that are not coronavirus related these days. Um, so I didn't have a Lincoln specific story, but I was, and I wanted to get the two of your thoughts on it as well. I was mm-hmm. thinking today about current events in Lincoln unrelated to the pandemic, but two things that have kind of jumped out at me about um, the democratic presidential nomination process. One, I was trying to decide between Um, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and, you know, hadn't really totally made my mind up when Elizabeth Warren dropped out. So then I ended up voting for Bernie Sanders. And um, there's a lot of discomfort, I think, at least around people I know who have similar political views as I do about Joe Biden being a moderate and kind of losing that um, anti-establishment kind of uh, progressive voice. Um, And I do think two things kind of came to my mind. One, the fact that he's a moderate, I think if you look historically, and I think Abraham Lincoln is the best example of a very similar situation where you had a party much divided between, I mean, it was a, it was a very new party, but it was essentially like abolitionists combining with old line Whigs and, and, you know, the Whigs who stayed or, you know, kind of some of the Whigs created the base of the Republican party, some went to the Democrats and then you've, got the anti uh, enslavement, the abolition folks coming in too. So, but, but you had a a pretty wide range of of views within one party. And there was certainly a much more abolitionist viewpoint and they were considered to be more radical. And there was a lot of discomfort around taking what was maybe seen as the easy way out and nominating Lincoln because he had no, you know, no real, no real record to go on and was viewed very much as a moderate. And he was correctly probably viewed as a moderate because he was, um, I think similarly, historically, I think another good example of that is Barack Obama, who was also really looked at as a moderate. They called him for a while. They were calling him like the purple candidate because he appealed to so many people and he was less liberal than Hillary Clinton, um, in 2008. So I think that there's a little bit of a historic record to maybe ease that discomfort a little bit, um, to say that, yes, there have been some so-called moderate candidates who have gotten some pretty revolutionary things done. Abraham Lincoln being, of course, the best example of that. Arguably, someone who is maybe more radically abolitionist may not have accomplished abolition in 1865, as Abraham Lincoln did, along with, obviously, many, many other people. Who knows? But, you know, had a, had a moderate or had a more radical person won the nomination they may not have even won the election the 16th president may have been stephen douglas if 
if the Republican Party nominated somebody who was much more radical. So that was one thing that kind of was sticking with me. It was like, you know, I'm bummed out, too. I wanted a more liberal candidate. I preferred Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. Um, but I don't think it's quite as catastrophic to some of the viewpoints that I have, um, maybe from a long-term historic perspective. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, but, you know, maybe maybe the, the path to universal health care is going to be longer than it would have been, say, had a Warren or Sanders won. Maybe it's maybe we never would have got there with them and we need a moderate. Who knows? But I think history would say Lincoln being a moderate, Obama being, you know, viewed as a moderate. But we're both very effective in, in some of the things that they did. So that was one thought. Another thought I had was this nomination process is a joke because when, when we voted in Illinois, it was on March 17th. Mm-hmm. It was effectively over then. I mean, they're not even like half the states haven't even voted yet. Wisconsin had this crime of a judgment that said they couldn't that it was somehow undemocratic to mail in your votes and they forced people to risk their lives, literally risk their lives to vote in in what essentially is an already decided election. You know, so how how we've come to a point where, you know, depending on where you live, your vote matters more, really, in the nomination process for both parties is is tragic, I think. Looking back at Lincoln, of course, you have the the old school convention style where, you know, it's it's really interesting from a if it was a TV series, you'd be tuning in every week to see the twists and the turns and the backstabbings and the double crossings and it makes for a great story. And when it goes, you know, you know, Lincoln was I think Lincoln only took like five or six ballots, but some of them take, you know, it's it's taken dozens in the past. That's that's fun and interesting but of course i don't think that's real democratic either um but at least at least every state has a voice in that process at least an equal voice or or a proportionate voice um so i was kind of thinking about man how we do it now where it's like the first 10 or 15 contests seem to determine the winner or at least they have in the last few cycles compared to the convention style that was so important for lincoln's nomination compared to what seems to be obvious which is everybody votes on the same dang day and give people the day off work if you can mm-hmm. and do it that way. Well, you look at the primary, you even go further. I mean, the first two states, Iowa and uh, New Hampshire, have like nowhere close to the demographics of the nation as a whole. I mean, that's a crime itself, too. So, yeah, I don't know why this will probably never happen, but they should all just do it the same day. Six months out, primary day, bam everybody does it, then it's much more of a fair thing. Even in that case, I mean, you look at the Electoral College, do we really all have the same voting power there? Uh, yeah, no, we don't. <laughs> yeah, I was just yeah, going to say, include that. In the same in the same process, say, like, all right, here's what's going to happen. Electoral College is gone, and you have two you have two days that everybody votes, and, the, and it'll make it Democratic, for sure. So, but yeah, but going back to your other point that you brought up, you know, I think... Bernie Sanders, definitely, and, like, that progressive wing of the Democrats. I mean, they got a lot of leverage still. I mean, this is, like, a big-time election coming up. A lot of people very divided. They're going to need all the support that they can get. And he has leverage. And him staying in and picking up delegates is a leverage move. So he can continue to push that platform to the left, which I think he did last election, too. Um, Unfortunately, the electoral map didn't play out well. 
Um, so I definitely think there is power there. And just reading the first three chapters of this, you see how big of a role radical Republicans had, mm-hmm. um, or as well as Democrats. But like when you're leading, you know, you got to listen to that other voice, um, especially if it's your own political party. You got to listen to that other voice for sure. So that's kind of reassuring to know that they have that. But then there was a tweet I came across the other day, and it was from Mark Cuban. I, you know, he's a divisive guy as it is. But when things are all messed up beyond recognition, that's when the heroes step forward and create things, invent things, and develop things that change the world. And that's what we needed right now. If you have a vision for America 2.0, now's, that, now's the time. Does Joe Biden have that vision for America 2.0? I don't think so. And that worries me there. Um, you know, we, we're in a terrible time right now. I would like to see us use this to make America better when we come out another end um, and get some of these changes. Because if anything, heck, man, if the primary was shifted by like three months and there was a way to vote, you know, by mail, dang, you know, you know how much leverage Bernie would have? It'd be a whole completely different narrative yeah. to all this. Yeah. I don't think, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I don't think it's going to happen, but I've had the thought that this should, at best, this whole thing could be the price that we have to pay to get healthcare that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, like, you know, very similarly to how, like, the Civil War was the price that many people had to pay. Unfortunately, they shouldn't have had to pay it. I'm not saying that, that, like, you have to do this, but just based on power dynamics, the Civil War was the price that we had to pay for both to get abolition and and for the sin of slavery. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is our the price that we have to pay, along with like this culminating event is exposing generations of racist healthcare policies, right? Like it's like this is nothing new that like, wow, African Americans are dying at a much higher rate. Like, mm-hmm. are they more susceptible to the disease? Like, no, this is what racism and poverty does to people. They are they're literally at a higher risk of dying. And this is like so now so obvious. Is this now finally the final price that we have to pay to get a healthcare system that is fair? Probably not. I don't think it's actually going to happen, you know, unless Biden somehow can win the election and pull it off. I, I don't know. Um, but these things do kind of resonate. And I do think that, Nick, to your point about Bernie and Elizabeth Warren kind of pull, like, it's still a party. The Republicans were still a party. Like, Seward was still a very influential person in the party. The radical Republicans were still very influ- – it wasn't as if at least I, not on the Democrat side currently or the Republican side then, was it like, well, that's your presidential nominee. That's how goes the party. Yeah. Now, on the other side, the current president, I feel that is what's happening, that he won the nomination and it was like, okay, this is apparently what the people want. And then he just – and he just – takes the party in the direction part of it's his style like if you there's no there's no dissent allowed mm-hmm. um so i don't see a whole lot of influence from people like mitt romney or um you know a lot of these governors who are realizing that this is this is there's major problems now these republican governors who are who are fighting as hard as they can for their people and realizing that this isn't working um but well, yeah this, it's this might have put more governor races and like the senate races now more into play there so you know biden let's say biden does win the election and then the senate flips damn man the gates are open who knows what then you know what i mean Mm -hmm. watching this all unfold has been i mean and i'm i'm a canadian looking in on this and you know i'm 
I was saddened to see of Bernie dropping out the other day because um, I like him, but I there's there's parts of Biden that I like too. And I mean, the one thing that, that I want for all of you is this universal health care. Like we've had it in Canada for so long and it's, it's just, it seems so simple. Um, but here- it Seems like a basic human right. Yeah, yeah. It's like we, we don't, you know, like for instance, when my husband had cancer, like didn't have to pay for anything. Like just Man, like, lucky- yeah in in that regard but just watching and but the the other thing i've noticed is that you know my my provincial premier ford um he is a cons- he's a what's called a progressive conservative so real quick real quick yeah. who was his brother uh rob ford mayor of really? toronto yes yes oh, nice. that yes yes that guy that you heard about Sorry, I just had to throw yep. the Providence underneath the bus there. Yep. But anyways, yep. continue. No, I just want to make sure because I'm always I'm always calling the current premier Rob. And uh, yes, it's Doug Ford is our premier of Ontario. So basically our governor. So he's a conservative, which is basically Republican. And Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, is a liberal. Um, and just to see how they've all, all the premiers of the provinces and how the federal government has been working together to get all the, like, to be all on the same page, I've never seen anything like it before. And even the, so Justin Trudeau has a very strong minority right now in parliament, which means he is at risk, you know, in normal circumstances of, you know, getting kind of kicked out and there being an election even his opposition, like the conservatives um, who are led right now by Andrew Scheer, just they're all banding together to do all this stuff. And they're updating us every single day. Every single day, Justin comes out of his house and talks to us. <laughs> and then we have an update from our chief medical officer of health and everybody else. Um, you know, they have different people each day that are updating us and letting us know what's going on. And then we have the provincial update as well but there's this kind of like political stuff is getting cast aside and it's all about let's get this done and the one thing we've been told a lot lately is what we are doing is going to help the economy in the long run and and we were told the other day we were told the measures that we're taking we're not going to go into to a depression it's going to be a recession but it's not going to be a depression because we're taking, they're like, we're taking care of you. And they're literally taking care of everybody in this country right now, which is like, it's, I wish you guys had that. Like, but I see some governors, like I see DeWine in Ohio and I see, you know, other governors too, that are just kind of, they're doing it. Like they're doing Mm -hmm. what's right. Um, Yep. Our governor's doing a great job. So yeah. And And I did not like, and he was, Again, very. I mean, he was. It's we're in a blue state, so he was. Yeah. Left of moderate, but he was. He was definitely the less liberal, liberal candidate. Um, but he's doing a great job. I don't. I just personally was kind of didn't want to vote for a billionaire running against another billionaire, but yeah. is what it is. And it's funny in Canada, the the color of the Liberal Party is red. Is it really? Yeah, <laughs> but the color the Conservatives is blue, so I'm in a blue province. We're we're conservative. Um, oh yeah, there you go. But I mean, I've never really liked Doug Ford, but the way he's been handling this situation has I've gained respect for him mm-hmm. in all this. And I'm not sitting there thinking like, yeah, but you didn't do this and you're not doing that. I'm sitting there thinking like, oh, 
You've got well, this. Let's be honest. Like the, all of the solutions are very, they're all liberal ideas. Can you imagine if a democratic president tried to pass the $2 trillion stimulus oh, package, yeah. just gave money to people like it would have never gotten off the ground. Um, or at least not in the same way. So it's ridiculous. But anyway, so out of respect for Bernie, um, anytime that anybody wants to talk in the book club, you got to do do this, wave your fingers. Yeah. <laughs> for Bernie. I'm going to miss Bernie. He was like, yeah. I really liked him. Wow. I don't think he's going too far. So no, he'll be other, yeah, he'll Maybe be he'll there. be Biden's running mate. Who knows? Uh, he's uh, Biden's committed to choosing a woman. So, wow. Uh, yeah. So my guess, my guess is Warren. Kamala Harris, but. Uh, yeah. I don't think he'll pick Warren. I think, no? or, or I don't think she would. I don't know. I think it's going to be Kamala Harris hmm. or uh, the governor of Michigan, whose name escapes me right now, but the president referred to her as that woman from Michigan. So yeah. I, feel badly oh, that I don't God. know her name off the top of my I... head, but um, she's, she seems to be pretty good. And she's from a state that yeah. the Democrats need to win. I think it's going to be either one of those two, the good current governor of Michigan mm-hmm. or Kamala Harris are my two guesses. I, maybe I... Amy Klobuchar, maybe. Um, I I, I just hope at you know at the end of all this, like I know Bernie's big thing was universal health care. I just hope at the end of all this COVID that it teaches people, you know, the powers that be in the U.S. that that is what you you need to be able to handle a situation like this. And I mean, even in Canada, we are we are having our struggles with it. Like we're Mm -hmm. we're trying to get the PPE that we need. We're trying to get everything else and. But still, like it's it's still tough. Like, mm-hmm. for sure. But I do think not to provide a segue again on your behalf, Mary, because mm-hmm. you are an outstanding host. No. But there was a lot of parallels to at least the first chapter of the book club. I think to kind of what we're talking about yep. with how that leadership dynamic shakes out in a time of crisis, for sure. Yeah, and that's exactly what this book is about, Tried by War, is it's looking at Abraham Lincoln as the commander-in-chief. So he's going, he's coming into the presidency. The America's at its greatest crisis it had faced until that time, which is it's on the brink of a civil war. Um, so, And that's what the book's about. And it's about looking at Lincoln's evolution as commander-in-chief, like how he dealt with these generals, how he dealt with the various battles, and how he changed his policies and his strategy and all that over time. And so tonight we're going to be looking at the introduction as well as the first three chapters of that book. Um, so just a couple things. The book goes in chronological order, um, so which is gives it a nice logical flow. It allows you to see how Lincoln evolved, how he had to change, who he was dealing with when the different battles happened. Um, McPherson certainly does not jump back and forth at all. He, he does a great job. Um, the chapter titles are also quotes from the Civil War, many from Lincoln himself, and many will be recognizable as well, which I really appreciated McPherson doing it that way, because it kind of lets you know what the chapter is going to be about and all that. Um, so do you guys have anything else to add about how the book flows? No, uh, I think uh, one one rule of the Railsware Book Club is like any other book club, where if you didn't read it, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can still participate in our book club, um, or you can listen to this later and start to read it. Um, I think that, you know, the nice thing about a history book club is you don't have to worry about any spoilers. <laughs> so. Yep. Um, so if you could probably do it all three ways, you can read it and follow along with our book club. You can not read it and pretend like you did, or you can listen to this and then go back and read it. And I think you'll, you'll have a good experience. Um, anyway, that you kind of do it. Yeah. Um, 
So in the introduction, like McPherson's kind of laying out what he's going to do in this book, he talks about Lincoln's um, basically lack of military career, I guess you could say. Um, And he gives examples of what Lincoln said about it. Like, yes, sir, I fought, bled and came away after charges upon the wild onions and a good many struggles with the mosquitoes. Lincoln said this when he was a congressman in 1848. Um he states that Lincoln faced a steep learning curve as commander in chief because compared to somebody like the Confederate president, Jefferson Davis, who had been to West point, who had fought in the Mexican war, (laughs) it was thought that Lincoln just didn't have, you know, that same kind of training. But as we will see, that didn't really matter. (laughs) Lincoln comes out being on top of that. Obviously Um, Davis himself was a bit of a micromanager which did not work in his favor. And, um, but the one like McPherson also says that Lincoln's strong suits are that he has a keen analytical mind, as well as a fierce determination to master any subject to which he implied himself. And his contemporaries also said that about Lincoln. So he's setting up just how Lincoln, even though he doesn't have this military experience that Jefferson Davis has or others around him, he's got this mind that is able to work things out. Well, yeah. And I like, to go there they use like a quote not quickly not brilliantly but exhaustively like he would dive into stuff and then Harrington quote not only went to the root of the question but dug up the root and separate and analyze every fiber mm-hmm. of it so this idea that Lincoln when he wanted to learn something he wasn't worried about doing it quickly he meant to do it completely um, and he was analyzing to understand it um, the whole the whole the whole of the thing um, and you get to see that, and he does a nice job kind of showing that in the chapters. And you kind of see a lot of the first three chapters kind of evolution of Lincoln, evolution of him understanding military tactics and operations, evolution of his slavery stance, and you kind of see that grow mm-hmm. throughout all that. But Yeah, and I think a, an important point to that, I think that's a great observation, but it's also not just this, like, him working super hard, like, like, I think the the myth of Lincoln always has him teaching himself how to be a lawyer. Like he got the books and he, you know, which he did, of course, but like, it wasn't just that. Like he also learned from being with people and he would go to courts and he would talk to lawyers and he would talk to judges and he would screw up and he would get better. And I think this is very much the same. And McPherson does a really good job of showing that, like, not only did he read everything he could get his hands on about military tactics, he also recognized that this is a war like none other in history. So there were a lot of that stuff is, probably out the window or evolving. And then he would screw up and he would, and he would learn from it. Like very, very early on, he uh, McPherson tells him really what seemingly minor stories about things that he did. Like, like there was um, he, I think he did a really good job telling the story about how he let Seward handle uh, Fort uh, Pickens and he handled Fort Sumter. And then Seward kind of did a little shady thing and took the best ship in the Navy and send it to Pickens when it was much more useful at Sumter. It ended up being non-consequential, but McPherson points out that like Lincoln noticed what happened, learned from it and never again did he really blindly trust like that and kind of, and he kind of learned like, okay, I guess this is the game we're playing. Whereas if I assign something to you and, and then of course that was part of the evolution of his relationship with Seward. It was part of his evolution of his, uh, as commander in chief, um, but like, not only is he learning in the traditional sense, but he's also applying that to everything he does. And when he screws up, he gets better and mm-hmm. he learns from it. And he's also not only learning 
in those two ways, but he's also seeing what's happening. Like, you know, this is a unique time and he's seeing what's going on and kind of adapting to, to the, to the whole process militarily and otherwise. Oh, I, I agree with that too. Like, yeah, you see Lincoln's mistakes, you see how he changes, which is very much on like McClellan. (laughs) McPherson discusses quite a bit too, in these first three chapters. Um, So there's kind of like, they're kind of running parallel to each other, I guess, um, you know, to see how they both dealt with the situation, how Lincoln had to deal with him. Um, And the other thing that McPherson outlines in his introduction is just that the five wartime functions that Lincoln had to perform, which were policy, national strategy, military strategy, operations, and tactics. And he defines each of those so that the reader knows like what they all are. And that's kind of how he focuses this writing is on how Lincoln did all of these things. And um, he says that he gives them, he lists them in order that Lincoln would have oversaw. So Lincoln would have overseen policy the most, but you know, the military tactics the least. And that really, when I kept that in mind, when I was reading the first three chapters, that really helped as well. Yeah, I agree with that. I love the, how he defined those five things. And Mm -hmm. that's how, that's the framework I had in my mind when reading the three chapters as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's an interesting point just about leadership in general. You know, Nick and I, before we went on, we're kind of talking about leadership in our organization, how, you know, the president really should, the commander in chief really should not concern himself with tactics. Um, that would be, I think, the term we would probably use now is micromanaging. But Lincoln still was knowledgeable about that and, and tried to work to learn it and probably did involve himself a little bit in tactics from time to time. Um, but like there was a good story um, or anecdote or whatever you want to call it late in the third chapter about how he went out and chose part of a beach or whatever where they should where they where he felt that they should use as like a jumping off point or something which is like a really specific thing for the commander-in-chief to to decide or or provide advice on so you know he definitely definitely was involved in as much as he possibly could be but also did a fair amount of delegation yeah and it did it depended upon the general too how much he was going to be involved i think we'll probably see once grant gets involved he takes a step back whereas with you know, somebody like McClellan, he had to get a little bit more involved than what he wanted to, even though he mm. he didn't want to. But he gave him a chance. I mean, yeah. you know, McClellan earned that. You know, yeah, he, he was he was trusted and believed, and possibly to a fault. You know, how mm. you you know, kind of the whole fool me once, fool me twice kind of thing. But you know, I think for a while, at least McPherson tells it pretty well that Lincoln deferred to him. Yep quite a lot and to the point where his advisors were kind of saying like you need to stop yeah I, you know and i don't think lincoln of 63 64 does that because at this point lincoln's still trying to catch up to speed on military tactics on military operations yeah and i don't think he has the confidence to completely go against somebody who's as opinionated at mcclellan at that point it's kind of how i viewed it almost yeah that that's a good point like the first few chapters i think they take us up to because it's in chronological order so end of chapter three we're at may 1862 i think is is where it takes us to um but yeah it says like the last two paragraphs of the introduction kind of sum up things like he had struggles with mcclellan halleck buell pope burnside hooker and rosecrans um 
And McPherson says their shortcomings compelled Lincoln to become, in effect, his own general in chief as well as commander in chief during the key campaigns. And um, the theme of the book is to show that Lincoln was a hands on commander in chief who persisted through a terrible ordeal of defeats and disappointments to final triumph, which, um, like Jeremy hit on with like the mistakes that he made and all that. Um, and then at the end, tragedy, which is obviously Lincoln getting assassinated. So that's where he's going to take us with this book is all the way through. So chapter one, actually, do you guys have anything more to add to the introduction? I don't know. That's I'm not specific. I didn't really take notes sectioned off. So I don't know where my thoughts. Okay. <laughs> I don't know which part of the nope. book they're coming from. But. Okay. No, that's, it's been great so far. <laughs> um, so chapter one was the quest for strategy, which is the election through May of 1861. So, and that just deals with policy and tra- strategy that Lincoln had to deal with when he became president. So the whole thing with Fort Sumter, with what you mentioned about um, with Seward, Jeremy mm-hmm. w- was in that. Um, and then chapter two is May of 1861 to January of 1862, which um, looks at the Confederacy moving its capital to Richmond, Virginia, which really kind of changes the game. Like it's that much closer to Washington now. And then chapter three, you must act is January 1862 to May of 1862, which major events than that include replacing um, Cameron with Stanton as secretary of war. Um, And in all three chapters, McClellan figures. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one thing that I really like from, I think I'm pretty sure it's chapter one was um, talking about how the, the role of commander in chief wasn't really, Underst- I don't even know if understood is the right word, but mm. defined, I guess. Or, yeah. There wasn't really an accepted definition of that role. So Lincoln, even as president-elect, was really engaged in trying to figure out, like, what what does the Constitution mean for the commander-in-chief? What does it mean specifically in the case of rebellion? And what was his role going to be as commander-in-chief? And I think that, that that was pretty interesting to me because that's kind of a different – conversation i think than you read a lot of where they you know there really wasn't and i think this is a byproduct of you know between jackson and lincoln was just essentially a series of of a weak executive branch one term president after one term president fillmore's in there um buchanan so like you kind (laughs) of buchanan right um so the only real example that you have of someone acting as commander in chief in that whole time period is Polk in the Mexican American war. And that war isn't really the best example of, you know, you're not going to get a good example, even if it were Lincoln or Roosevelt or, you know, because you can't lead a war in the 1850s from Washington that's taking place in Mexico and California. Like even if Polk wanted to be this huge, um, manager of the war it just it wasn't going to happen just because Mm -hmm. of the distance i don't think it would have anyway so there's a real example of what the commander-in-chief chief's role is um because you don't we really haven't been at war you know the war of 1812 was it was just so early on the role of the presidency has been evolving all this time so lincoln's in a really interesting situation historically not only does he have the civil war but like what is his role as commander-in-chief and how is he going to interpret it? And I think that um, McPherson does a good job of kind of showing that he didn't really know. He didn't really – it's not like he said, 
I ran on this platform where the, you know, the presidency is this and the commander in chief is that he, he asked a lot of people and he kind of tried to fill it out a little bit. And he himself just kind of deferred to the constitution to say like, what does the constitution even say about this? And in in that Supreme court decision that was five to four with, I think three people voting Mm -hmm. in the majority appointed by Lincoln himself, deciding that the commander in chief can do actions related to war without a congressional or Senate declaration of war has huge historic implications that people don't really know about or talk about that right there allowed Lincoln and basically kind of endorsed like you're going to be the commander in chief. This is a war, even though there was never a declaration of war because there was no acknowledgement of the Confederacy. Um, I think it's important um, because he, and it wasn't something he took lightly and it wasn't something where he was like, well, the magnitude of the situation requires this leadership. It was actually a real constitutional conversation. Um, and there was a lot of different interpretations for it. And I think it's always kind of funny to look back at Seward just kind of coming in thinking he was going to be like, um, what, like what he, he used them um, like prime minister or premier kind of the, Yes. Second like in command, you know, almost like sort the, of not even like, the show. Yeah. Not even second in command as much as like the, you know, the president's just kind of a figurehead, kind of like, yeah. the, kind of like prime minister monarch in yep. the UK or something, you know, like, like you, you be the queen of England. I'll be, you know, Boris Johnson's a horrible example, but whoever the prime yep. minister is, you know, and, um, you know, maybe do it that way or something. I don't know. But like he, he kind of came in just assuming this because he's because of his experience and his reputation in the party. Um, so I, I kind of enjoyed how McPherson chose to tell that story of we're trying to figure out what the commander in chief role is, what everybody's responsibility and role is, how they all are going to work together. Meanwhile, you have this the biggest crisis the country's faced in its in its life. Um so yeah, that, I, I really enjoyed that part of chapter one. Yeah, I I did too. And just to the how he talks about the suspension of hab- like you know habeas corpus and all that, and he gives the example of that Lincoln did back off of it sometimes. Well, uh, he told that in a way, and I'm sorry if I'm talking a lot, but he told that in a way that I hadn't really heard anybody tell it before. Yeah, like providing like there was actually a legal backing to him doing that. Yeah. Like, it, like there was a there's a clause in the Constitution that says during times of rebellion, the only time you can suspend habeas corpus is during times of rebellion. So I was like, I still don't think it was good, obviously. But like, man, you know, he actually had a justification because I think that story is told a lot that he just kind of like unequivocally just said, like, nope, Maryland's too important. We can't have any dissenters in Maryland, like lock them up, which I mean, he kind of did. But there at least there's a little bit of that legal backing to it. But he did say that, you know, there was a time that the, um, I think, was it, someone suggested that the Maryland legislatures be arrested so they could stop the possible secession. Lincoln's mm-hmm. like, no, they've got a clear right to assemble. <laughs> so there was times where he was like, no, we we really can't be, <laughs> like, total can't dream, we can't be draconian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'll go, I'll, I'll go right up to that line, but I'm not going to cross. That, yeah. that particular line is not the one I'm going to cross. Yeah. Nick, what do you think so far? No, I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying. I think, I mean, the big thing, he, I mean, America, when we think of war, the first person we turn to is the president. And it's really Lincoln that made it so, uh, whether that's good or bad. And 
ever since then, every single war we've ever been in, especially, you know, the president's been the one with the ball on his court. Uh, Congress has tried to take it back at different times, but it just doesn't go that way. Um, as far as I, I think it's a lot of obviously his focus on policy, you know, is to keep the union together. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of it's dealing with this national strategy. How, how is he going to work, you know, with, you know, military stuff psychologically? How is he going to I mean, that's the big thing with Fort Sumner. How does he win this little battle here psychologically to make it look like he's not to ingress to basically make everybody happy? Mm-hmm. And then to me, that that's just a brilliance in there. He waited it out. He thought about it, looked at it. And at the end of the day, he's able to tiptoe that line. I mean, that's what Lincoln does. He knows how to tiptoe the line where he just seems to make the right decisions, which is dangerous. I mean, he had a lot of power and stuff. Thank God it was him and not somebody else running it, where I just think he's he's good at tiptoeing that line and knowing when to do the right thing and when not to do the right thing the majority of the time. Mm-hmm. Kind of when we're talking about like the issue in Maryland from – the legislators are getting together to the people who are speaking out, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, well, dare I say that maybe that's the moderate coming out. Like yeah. mm-hmm. the Sumter situation comes up and he's got, you know, build up this, build up the garrison, defend it till the last person or abandon it altogether. And he decides, why don't we just bring some food in and, and, and say, say exactly what we're doing. We're not. We're just feeding hungry people. We're not abandoning it, and we're not gonna. We're not preparing for war because you have no right for their for to to attack it. So like he kind of comes up with this middle thing, which ends up being brilliant mm-hmm. because you know he does definitely. It's a chess move that kind of plays them into you know it puts the ball in their court in a very good way because that's one of those situations where nobody nobody wants the ball in this particular case and it ended up working well for him. Um, I, I did like. I I think the way McPherson talks about Winfield Scott is fascinating because so often it's like old, senile, lazy, sleeping all the time, sick, really kind of a non-factor. But he paints him to be a pretty major player here and um, loyal to the union, but also kind of conflicted with being a Virginian and trying to, you know, I, I, he, he kind of emerged in this particular narrative as a really interesting character. I thought I, I agree. I think another thing that's fascinating about Lincoln is just his courage or confidence to listen to dissenting voices and also to go against, you know, powerful figures like a Scott disagree with them. And just to have that self-assurance to do that and to do it and not like look back on it or change his mind, like mm-hmm. complete opposite of McClellan. When you think about it, Oh yeah, uh, it's, it's rather remarkable and one of the best qualities of Lincoln. And another thing I was thinking about, he always had like an answer to why he was doing stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it was like a bullshit answer, like a spin answer necessarily either. I think a lot of the time with the way his mind worked, he looked deep into problems and he did take a legal argument and he thought that he did have this power within the constitution. I don't think he was just spinning it and knew he was abusing it. I think he truly did it because I think a lot of times he had, in his head, I have two shitty options. What's the least shitty that's going to save and help us achieve this policy, which was either to keep the union together or eventually to get rid of slavery as well. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And there's, you know, it's like, you know, him bringing McClellan in like he did, 
and then all the struggles with McClellan, but keeping him in when people were saying like, oh, you know, shouldn't have him in there, but he kept him in there, you know, to keep morale of the army high and all that. Um, and then to, um, I had a point here that I was going to talk about <laughs> all the political generals he had to deal with as well. And just the issues with them and how he had to kind of, as you said, Nick, like kind of toe that line. Like, you know, you have someone like Fremont who's really going too far with the slavery at at that time and not deal, doing what the contraband policy was. Yeah. Like Lincoln's having to kind of toe that line with it. Well, I think chapter two really gets into that, that balancing. Yeah. It's like a teeter-totter between, you know, the political strategy and the military strategy. Yeah, and then how does he teeter top between that? Um, it, I found that fascinating. Yeah, that, I always do. That that was really interesting. How like Fremont's out doing all this stuff, and Lincoln's like, "No, don't do that." But then I think it was Burnside who was. I think it was Burnside who brought in the kind of the contraband thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it Butler? No, but Butler. yeah, Butler. 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 Yeah, Butler. Yeah, yeah, Butler brought in well, the contraband. Yeah. The, what I like um, about that particular part with Missouri is the contrast between how they how Lincoln chose to deal with Missouri and how he dealt with Kentucky. Because, mm-hmm. like, I think it's too easy sometimes to say, like, this is, you know, even dividing the Civil War into the West and to the, to the Virginia even or the, you know, the South, the West and the East or whatever. Like, he dealt with Virginia and Kentucky, two states that, you know, clearly, you know, neighboring each other. Completely differently. Like he, he had a pretty heavy hand in Missouri when he realized Fremont wasn't doing, you know, he had basically had a whole department of war over there. Didn't like what was going on pulled Fremont out, had the Blair family, hugely influential in Missouri, relied on them heavily. And his strategy in Kentucky was essentially to do nothing because he felt like if he did anything that piss him off and they'd leave. And Davis actually had, you know, McPherson makes the point. Davis kind of had the same mm-hmm. idea. So neither one of them wanted to go into Kentucky. Neither one of them wanted to do a whole lot with Kentucky. Um, and neither one of those states ended up officially seceding, which I think is um, is interesting because completely different strategy with the two of them. And then another third strategy altogether with Maryland, yeah. where he was kind of involved in, in, in really kind of more in a subversion kind of way, like trying to, you know, their proximity to, to Washington, of course, was key in that. Um, but like dealing with, with all those and and Delaware was all another one. Yeah. 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 Going a step further, using Delaware as his template to see where he could go with the slavery issue by getting that introduction of, you know, about getting rid of slavery in Delaware, just masterful, really. Yeah. That was really, that was really great of him. It was very masterful. And that's another, like the one thing I did like about McPherson in this book is just how he talks about, the board like how he deals with the border states and that really opened my eyes even more to like wow lincoln is dealing with a whole lot of shit right now <laughs> like each border state had to be dealt with differently mm-hmm. and, and this is you know you talk about how the civil war is like this unprecedented event which of course yeah. it is but like every single small piece of this is the first time anyone's ever had to do anything yeah. like it and i think that shows the genius of lincoln even when he's making mistakes he recognizes what, you know, he knows that he had taken a risk and it didn't play out. And, you know, he, he he's not like a, you know, my way or the highway. I'm going to stick to my guns. This is how it's going to be. Like he's learning and evolving this whole time. And it's such a immense and dynamic 
uh, crisis that, that he's navigating and he's, and he's so adaptive and he's, and he grows so much and he learns so much. Um, even when he makes mistakes, I just, you know, I think that in a short, you know, it's what 90 some pages, I think McPherson really shows those qualities of the, that first year and a half. So, so well. Can we say for real quick that he's doing all this while he's spending literally hours a day with office seekers coming to the white house. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. How the hell do you even do that? Like, and also recognizing that people are taking advantage of that. Yeah. Yeah. And also dealing with McClellan, (laughs) which McPherson talks about a lot. Just his deal, his dealings with McClellan. I, I mean, I knew McClellan was really something to deal with, but reading, and I'd read all of those letters before, but just, to have McClellan or to have McPherson put them in to the chapters, it's like, wow, like McClellan was really like defiant. I think defiant mm-hmm. is the word. I've read parts of it to uh, Jerry, my spouse, and all he was like, was he really that full of himself? And I'm like, well, he never knew you failure. Mm-hmm. McPherson did a really good job showing that, I thought. Yeah, just a, he he explains that McClellan never knew failure, and so he just didn't want to do any of this because he was scared of it. And you know, talking about Pinkerton, but then inflating the numbers. Um, the other thing I didn't realize was just the hatred of Stanton that McClellan had. Well, in chapter they were, three, like yeah, because they were friends like, first. But that, I mean, and I, I think that there's a, there's a I liked how he kind of showed that because yeah. McClellan gets into West Point at 15, graduates second in his class, becomes yep. a general like essentially immediately, yep. doesn't get promoted quite as fast as he wants. So he goes into this like the equivalency of like a million dollar salary railroad gig, mm-hmm. then gets called back to a very, very high position again. And now all of a sudden he's like number two behind Halleck or Scott. Like, yeah. Of course he's going to be arrogant. Like, you know, I think there's quite a lot of little subtext that McPherson's put in there about the privileged life that McClellan's lived. Yeah. Where, of course, he's arrogant. Like, how could he not be? Like, everything has worked out for him with not nearly the effort that Lincoln had to put in for the smallest of things to work out for him. You know, so um, there's that. Plus, I think one important piece of the whole McClellan-Lincoln-Stanton soap opera, it's not as if while this is happening – there's someone else that people are going like, why not him? Like, yeah. clearly you have this person. Go to this person. Like, there isn't that person. No. Like, there's not There's not the, like, Burnside clearly wasn't, it wasn't Burnside. And, you know, of course, he had Hooker and Pope and all those other people a little bit down the road. But there wasn't, McDowell was a failure already. Yeah. Like, there wasn't somebody, you know, all of, all of those officers and generals went to the Confederacy, two-thirds of them. So, like, I think that's an important piece, too. It's it's not as if Lincoln's like, man, why is he so loyal to McClellan? Why does he keep turning to McClellan? Because he literally didn't really have anybody else to turn to. Yeah, and he didn't know the other generals well enough. And, like, probably one of my favorite parts of the, the first three chapters was when McPherson talks about Lincoln's support of Grant and how he says, uh, yes. the grant of history would not have existed and perhaps neither would the Lincoln of history had Lincoln not thrown support towards Grant. And that just really, I'm like, oh, this is going to come back to to play really hard in this book. And I'm looking forward to that a mm-hmm. lot. 
But that that quote um, in chapter three really resonated with me. Yeah, I liked it too because one minor criticism, I, I don't even have to call it a criticism, like he, he just kind of says like, oh yeah, the rest of the war was going great. So the first three chapters really didn't focus. I mean, he kind of just like, Shiloh was like a, a paragraph or two, mm-hmm. basically acknowledging that like, yeah, big big battle, 14,000 casualties, Grant won. And then, then he talked about Lincoln's support of Grant in a much more detailed way, which I liked now in hindsight, because at the time I'm like, oh man, tell me more about Shiloh. But in hindsight, it's like, because if you're looking at Lincoln as commander in chief, like the, the ins and outs of Shiloh and how they got there and what it meant territorially, that doesn't matter as much as Lincoln's defense of Grant and the pressure on Lincoln to get rid of Grant, even after a major victory, this rumor about Grant and how Lincoln, you know, kind of got rid of it. That's important if you're going to look at Lincoln as commander in chief, much more so than the hornet's nest or whatever else. Yeah. Well, I think that's the one thing like McPherson gives us enough of these battles to have that understanding um, to the point where like, Oh, I want to learn more about that. But I think we're also supposed to be seeing this from Lincoln's point of view in a way, if that makes sense to you too, that, you know, we're having as much knowledge as perhaps Lincoln had of these battles, maybe. Well, Lincoln, I mean, to him, I mean, he's in DC. He's got an army staring him down. McClellan's the pain in the ass, (laughs) you know, that's why that's where the focus is on that. So Mm -hmm. I, I think for him, he, He's the squeaky wheel. I mean, boys, you know this when you're administration. Who do you deal with the majority of the time? The person doing their job right or the squeaky wheel? Not that necessarily the squeaky wheel's doing their job wrong. But mm-hmm. typically squeaky wheel that's not doing her job right, that's where you spend the majority of your time. Yeah. And that's why I think the chapters are that way. You know, I was thinking about the Lincoln-McClellan dynamic. It's a lot like when you're a first teaching one or two years and then you got like this brilliant kid. You know he's brilliant but he's just arrogant and he's always challenging you on stuff. And then you might not know the answer there. And then you're just like, man, I, I don't know. You don't really know how to deal with that kid. I don't know if you experienced that in your first couple mm-hmm. of years. It, it's a tough dynamic. And I think that's where Lincoln's at because he is new to this military tactics. I mean, his military experience is extremely limited. He knows this guy's brilliant. I mean, he is brilliant. Mm-hmm. I mean, behind mm-hmm. it. Um, and he just didn't have that confidence yet to know how to deal with them at first. And that's why I think he keeps deferring to him. But we see him mature as a leader, especially a military, and understanding that. And eventually where he does push back on McClellan down the road. Um, or another analogy it could be it's like he also – it's like you got the star player in your basketball team. He drives you nuts. He makes mistakes. Doesn't only listen. But, damn, he's the only guy who can score. You know, sometimes you got to keep that guy on the floor, too. So there's kind of like that dynamic. <clears throat> well, and, and I think there's even more similarities to that comparison because, you know, a lot of times, too, like the example where you got a kid who's got an attitude problem, but he's a great athlete, and you're doing everything you can to, to get some humility in that kid. To yeah. say, like, you need to work hard, you need to be a team player. And then he reads in the newspaper about how awesome he is. And he's like, why do I need to listen to you when I've got – the local newspaper is saying that I'm the best point guard this school's seen in 20 years. Well, McClellan comes in and the newspapers call him the young Napoleon. And he's, you know, he's coming in and everybody's saying like, Oh, and, and of course Lincoln's like, yeah, you're good, but take it easy, man. Like, you know, like you're calm not that down. good. Like, yeah, calm down. Yeah, exactly. Calm down. Um, 
but of course, how could he? Like, how could you expect him to? And the and the example I think is it, it holds it holds up like that, that like any sort of wonderkind or whatever, somebody who's kind of you know you know that that little experience but all kinds of talent. It's hard. It's hard to build humility in that. Yeah. It's hard to have that humility, and I think that humility is something that Lincoln has, maybe to a fault. And then you, you got know? Grant. Grant's like that kid who hustles his ass off, yes. runs yes. through a brick wall after you, but he falls asleep in a couple classes, really because he's up too late, you mm-hmm. know, for, for reasons outside his control. Yeah. And then the teacher comes, you'd be like, "Oh, he he slept in my class. You need to punish him." And you're just like, "Come on, lady. Yeah. I mean, Stop. or a guy." So. Yeah, that come and, on, teacher. Yeah, and of course, Nick. Yeah, we we get the young people comparisons <laughs> all the time, but like, and at the same time, Grant wasn't ready, and Sherman wasn't ready. You yeah. know, like you know, because it's easy to say, like, well, of course, fire McClellan and bring in Grant. Like, he wasn't ready for that. Like, yeah. he was barely ready for the command that he had. Arguably, not ready for the command that he yeah, had. Yeah, he had to go through that trial by fire. You know, yes. at Shiloh, at you know, and going through Vicksburg, as well as going through the battles for for Chattanooga before Lincoln brought him before he went east like he mm-hmm. but along the way he's proving himself but Lincoln is also learning along the way too and I'm sure that's what we're going to see um unfold in McPherson's book and Nick it's funny you mentioned the squeaky wheel because that's exactly how McPherson describes McClellan <laughs> Yeah I yeah. I remembered it so I McClellan's will take credit. We- McClellan's wheel was by far the squeakiest that was yeah. that was a nice turn of phrase. I like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, he was. In weird times, though, because sometimes, like you know, like the time that McClellan just blew him off and went to bed. Oh yeah. Or like, or like that whole time he was. I mean, granted, he was sick, but like that whole time he was sick. So like they were like rushing to make decisions without him, and you know, trying to not to involve him. And then all of a sudden, he's, he's like, wait, 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 I'm fine, yeah. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. So. There's actually he he wrote letters to Lincoln during that time. I've got a book of McClellan's war correspondence and there was one letter where he wrote he's like I've overtasked my strength and I need to be in bed. And that's at the time he got sick. But then a few days later it's like I am so much better. Like that's what he wrote to him. I'm so much better. I have superior I have a superior yeah. immune system. Yeah. To I'm all, so much better. All other officers, yeah. I defeated this disease better than anybody else yeah, could. I'm back. I had ten times the the viruses that anybody else had, and I still was. <laughs> I don't know. That was an over overestimating your enemy kind of yeah. joke. I, I, I yeah, tripped no. on the delivery. Sorry. <laughs> Although I feel like McClellan would be perfect for our current administration. Oh no! <laughs> Can you imagine that? Like, you know, that's the one thing. It's like Lincoln's humility actually kind of complimented. McClellan, because I mean, part of it was McClellan did do some things well. He trained that army pretty well. Oh, McClellan like, was really good at that. But but Lincoln also had the humility just to be like, that's just McClellan being McClellan. Let him run his mouth off. Like when it comes down to it, like I know what he's doing and I know what he's not doing. And when it comes time to fire him, I'm going to fire him. Yeah. Um. You know, I think he had that humility to to kind of, you know, he. I mean, having the positional authority, being the president, helps too because you can just say like, well, what what's he going to say to me? I'm the president of the United States. Like. Um, but I think that humility kind of helped him too. Like he didn't have to tell Seward, know your role, get, you know, get in line. He just kind of said like, nope, we're not, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to do this yeah. way. And, and Seward, and, and that I think made their relationship so much better. I agree. We're almost at time for this podcast. <laughs> All right. Cruising. 
We are. This has been a wonderful discussion. So we all did our homework this time. So we did. <laughs> um, so initial thoughts, guys, quickly on the book so far, uh, Jeremy. I I'm enjoying it. It's 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 exactly kind of what we I think we're looking for, which was um, a lot of content, kind of in a tight tighter package, and, and delivered pretty efficiently. Um, so it's I've really enjoyed it. I think the narrative style works well for for the modern reader, so to speak, it's, it's got a nice, nice blend of the narrative with the historic content. And, um, the fact that we were just kind of talking about different positions we've taken or t- taken from his perspective or, um, from the way he's, he's kind of presenting it, I think shows, shows that it's good because, you know, we've obviously read, read a decent amount of stuff on Lincoln and I was still like, Oh yeah, I really like how he chose to tell that. Or this is something that I hadn't really thought about. So yes, I'm very much enjoying it. So I'm glad that people voted for the book you selected, Mary. I would say, you know, it's not as good as a book on Reconstruction. (laughs) Have you read the book on Reconstruction? Or the first three chapters of it? First of all, that book on Reconstruction, I think, has got more recognition than this book. Nicholas, have you read the first three chapters? Of what? This (laughs) book? The book on Reconstruction. No, the first three words. (laughs) But I'm not going to go and sell my soul, say this is the best book ever, three chapters in. I'm saying I'm going to continue to read it. It's solid so far. We're not asking you to sell your soul and say it was the... I have no major complaints at this point. I've enjoyed reading it. It's led to a delightful conversation. I hope our listeners have enjoyed it. Um, So I will not give my final recommendation on this book yet. Um... However, you know, I'm not turning the movie off so far. <laughs> you going to stick around for season two? Good. Yes. Good. Hey, well, obviously, I've enjoyed it so far. I've really enjoyed McPherson's humor throughout the book. Um, just there's been times about McClellan that's made me laugh. And <laughs> just the different things I've learned, too. Like, I didn't realize how deep McClellan's hatred of Stanton ran. And uh, just, again, how much – I was reminded again of how much McClellan defied Lincoln Like when he was like, I was much tempted to reply that he had better come do it himself. <laughs> like, he's writing this all to his wife. No, you aren't. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, McClellan. <laughs> like, really? If Lincoln had showed no, up? Yeah. Like, no. Um I will say he writes in a manner where it's easy to read. He does. It, it is quick to read too. So he does. I really, um, I really appreciate that in the history field because I think you know if you get writing, not that there's anything wrong with writing academically, but I think if you want to get people interested in the Civil War in Abraham Lincoln, you've got to write a little bit more like what McPherson does. Um, and that's why. He probably has the greatest single volume on the Civil War, yeah. which I have read, and I do enjoy that book. So yeah, I, will. I think, have not. Yeah, I think there's there's merits to both, but you got to pick one. Yes, you know, either write either write that academic like where historians are looking at it and wanting your primary sources and wanting to see exactly how you're doing this, and don't take a position on anything but present it, or do a narrative style more accessible. I don't like it when people try to make a narrative style that's like super deep into the history because it just pick, pick pick one and you know so mm-hmm. and, and he did and it and he's got plenty of history and it's it's very much an academic 
level at least of the content yep. but but the but the narrative is is very accessible yeah it it and that's what's nice is it, it is accessible and it's i'm i have to say like i'm i'm at chapter six right now oh, <laughs> i ran ahead because it was so good <laughs> loser hey we're all quarantined yeah i have not nick i don't have a job right now so. I'm currently reading on Goodreads has four books on it. So I got an yeah, audio actually, book, a book I'm reading for pleasure, a book I'm reading for the podcast and a book I'm reading for work. I, I started, I have to admit, I started bloody crimes last night by James Swanson, which is about, oh, that's, the, that's fun. yeah, that's I'm, I started that one. last night. Cause I'm like, I wanted to read more of McPherson, but I'm like, Nope, I got to save <laughs> that. And I didn't, and I'm reading Southern Storm by Noah Andre Trudeau right now, right now, which is, it's about Sherman's March to the Sea. It's a little bit heavier reading, which I was like, I don't know if I want to read this at 11 o'clock at night. So I dove into Swanson last night and read about Jefferson Davis leaving Richmond. Uh, that's, I recommend that book. Yeah, that'll very be... good so far. It's very yeah. good. Yeah. So are we wrapped up on what we think so far yeah i think so yeah all right so then we're ready to get to our weekly segments then yeah okay we are so yeah yeah uh of the people by the people who wants to go first i'll go okay oh shit i'm in the wrong social media (laughs) app i'm good though okay um it comes from Rue Serio on Rails. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. I didn't even make the connection to now. Good job. Yes. Yeah. That's uh, our girl. From Facebook page here in Springfield 217 Problems, I thought this group would enjoy it. Stay safe, friends. And it's got a picture, and it's got two people on each end, and then one person in the middle laying on the ground. And it says flatten the curve, and it has Lincoln laying there because, of course, he was six feet four inches. Um, remember to stay at least one Abraham Lincoln away from each other. Um, and I thought this was funny because I was just telling Kira when we were walking yesterday that I always think about me if I were to fall, would I fall on her shoes or not? Because I'm six feet tall, and then I would know how far to stay. Um, so this is a good picture on a Facebook chat. Great time to join. 540 members. Join us on the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln podcast on Facebook. We'll get you added in there and some great content going around there. So shout out to Rose. Rose is awesome. Um, and hopefully she's being safe down in Springfield. Jeremy? Um, so, uh, so this one's just because it's exactly what we were talking about earlier. Uh, Civil War humor is a great follow. Every now and then they come out with some they're, – they're always good. That sometimes they have some gems. Uh, but uh, talking about Philadelphia and Pennsylvania possibly being a swing state uh, brings in a little McClellan-ish humor where Civil War humor says, cheer up, everybody. Pinkerton says there are 750,000 moderate Republicans in the Philly sub- suburbs. We're going to vote, dem- vote Democrat this time. Uh, wouldn't that be nice? But, uh, of course, Pinkerton was the source for McClellan's huge overestimates of uh, Confederate forces, so that was a little joke. If you if you're in the know, which you would be if you read our book club, uh, that Pinkerton uh, Pinkerton's overestimates are McClellan's overestimates. So I thought that was kind of humorous. Solid. Awesome. 
So mine is um, of the people, by the people, but also sort of a review. Um, it comes to us from our latest guest, Dr. Kent, oh, yeah. Dr. David J. Kent. So he posted, my interview on Lincoln and viruses is now live on the Real Twitter podcast. I have been interviewed this past Thursday by Mary, Jeremy, and Nick on the Real Twitter podcast, and the episode is now on their podcast website. Their podcast has become a must-listen site for all things Lincoln. This is the second time I've been featured on the podcast. Previously, they had selected my book, Lincoln, The Man Who Saved America, as the very first book in their new book called Installment. That was awesome. Oh, thank you, Dr. Yes. Kent. Yeah, thank, thank you, Dr. Star. Kent. Enjoyed the conversation as yes. well last week. So, Yep, so I thought that was pretty awesome. For... <coughs> Indeed. And do we have but, a This Week in Lincoln? I think, didn't you send us one? Because that one was hilarious. Oh, yeah. So my <laughs> one of my colleagues um, sent me a message the other night. And she's like, I'm always going to think of Lincoln when I think of you. <laughs> I looked at what she had. And uh, it was on Instagram. And... It was a drawing of Abe Lincoln, and he's just wearing black pants and a top hat, and he's shirtless. He has a six-pack, and it just says, Ab Lincoln, and the caption is, Emancipate this body. It's a little racier for this week in Lincoln. A little bit racy, <laughs> but I wrote my coworker back, and I'm like, I really appreciate this right now. Thank you. <laughs> so, yes, I will post that on our Twitter page and Facebook page tomorrow once this episode drops. So I guess that's today if you're listening to it. <laughs> These comments are great in this, this post. Oh, the six. Uh, yeah. The, somebody said a body with muscles divided against itself is incredibly sexy. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> oh uh, my. Leslie is freaking out right now. That's good. Oh, Emancipation man. proclamation. Hello. This sexy. Is ema emaciation proclamation. Oh, yeah. Stupid, sexy Abe Lincoln. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. Oh man, that's good stuff. And then someone tags someone else. This is so you. <laughs> Whoever that person is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if they would. <laughs> and then someone else at end of the 30 day ab challenge. Maybe the explosion didn't come from John Wilkes Booth's gun. <laughs> <laughs> good God. Don't read man. the comments. <laughs> History people have good comments. How about that? Yeah. Well, that was a fun one. Yeah, it was. All right, so we any parting thoughts? No, uh, I think that was kind of fun. Looking forward to the next two installments of the book club, and uh, yeah, keep reading, keep reading, and doing all that stuff, and hope everybody stays safe. Yep. Yep. Stay safe. Hang in there. Yep. I'm gonna try to do a couple uh, dispatches, local Lincoln stuff, <laughs> if I can uh, get the fam to do a short little road trip here. So hopefully, I'll get a couple more of those out this weekend. Awesome. That's oh, but also great. yeah, uh, happy holiday, everybody! If you're celebrating. Um, oh, yeah. I always personally look at Good Friday as more of the anniversary of uh, of a dark day in 1865, yeah. more than April 12th. I don't know why Good Friday kind of seems like it, um, more that way. Been, too. Yeah, they're really close this year, too. So, um, so of course, you know, go back and check out our assassination episodes. Uh, we've got, I think, three or four of them yep. um, in different ways. So those are worth checking out, too, if you're interested in kind of looking at a little bit of assassination history on the, is it 100 and... 55th? 55th this year, yeah. yep. Yeah. Nothing so, better to do when you're in tough times than go and listen to an Abraham Lincoln assassination episodes. Well, I can tell you this weekend I'm going <laughs> to be re-watching uh, Killing Lincoln, 
which we did talk about last year with Dave Taylor. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be watching it this weekend, and I might do a live tweet of it. I haven't quite decided yet, but oh, cool. thinking of live tweeting it. Um, what's what platform is? Is that you just got to buy that? Is that streaming? It, it's on. I think it's on iTunes. I think it's on Google. Okay, but it's not like Netflix. No, it's not on Netflix at all, unfortunately. I could tell you I will not be watching that this weekend. Okay. Did you hate it that much? Season 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 three of Ozark getting in the way? No, I don't watch Ozark. Come on. I, you know, this is going to be pathetic and bad. I was going to tackle the DC universe. Nice. I the entire thing? Uh, I haven't watched any of those terrible movies. Oh, the movies. Okay. Yeah. They're not bad. I don't know why. Justice League was fine. I thought it was good. So we'll, we'll see. I I got. I want to know, are they as bad as they really are? And yeah, so that's what I'm going to probably tackle. I'm going to be immersed in the 1860s this weekend. So I usually am <laughs> right now. Yeah. What else is new? Just to get away from 2020. Yeah, no kidding. Um, but anyway, so on behalf of Real Spitter Jeremy and Real Spitter Nick and myself, keep walking the world with malice toward none, with charity for all. And we will see you all again very soon. <laughs>